The views and opinions expressed by the guests of the Diplosport podcast do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of any agency of the United States government or any organization, public or private. Greetings, friends, and welcome to part two of our interview with Brigadier General Pete Dawkins, who was the 1958 Heisman Trophy winner out of the United States Military Academy. Uh, if this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, I just recommend you go back uh, either on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or Google Play and check out the part one of the interview with General Dawkins. The context would make a heck of a lot more sense. So with that, I'll turn things over to part two of my conversation with General Dawkins. Where is your actual physical Heisman Trophy right now? It's right now in our home in Colorado. Oh, <laughs> that um, must be a heck of a conversation starter. For 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 years, when I when I you know first went off to Oxford, mm-hmm. um, and um, had it, I gave it to my parents. They kept it for gosh, uh, probably ten twelve years. Because it seemed to me to be not a wise thing for a young lieutenant, <laughs> a young captain, to be uh, um, flouting uh, it, the, it, uh, the Heisman. And plus, at, at Oxford, they wouldn't have even known what it what it was, right? It, to them, yeah, football. No, no, that's true. That's true, too. But in any event, it came, uh, I, can, I don't remember the exact date or what, what was up, but I was visiting my parents, my wife Judy and I were there visiting my parents. We'd been there for a weekend and we're driving back, I think probably back to Washington, uh, DC that stage. And as we packed the car, there was a, an old uh, cardboard box with some rope tied around it. I said to my father, uh, so what's that? He said, that's the trophy. It's time for you to take it now. So uh, that's that's when it got reunited with uh, uh, with me. And, and really quick, that that's something that I didn't ask you about either when we were talking earlier. Um, uh, t- tell me a little bit about your parents. I, I read that your father was a dentist uh, who lived to to be a hundred years old, and uh, uh, right. that you had a great relationship with him throughout your life. Um, you know what? You didn't end up where you were without a, a, a really solid upbringing. How did your parents imprint your your character and work ethic uh, on onto you? Oh, I was very fortunate. Um, <clears throat> there were two parts to it, I, I think, as I look back on it. Uh, one was that my parents were of a generation where they, when they just got out of college, was the Depression, and they stepped right into um, the challenges that that, that presented. And my, my father was a brand-new dentist in Detroit, Michigan, and um, and couldn't get any patients. Uh, and he would tell stories about how, in those years, just to keep his skills up, he would he would uh, invite people off the street to come in so he could fill fillings or you know put a bridge in or do whatever, just so he could, uh, as I say, keep his and develop his uh, his skills as as a dentist. And so that was a very tough time. 
And then they just came out of that. Um, and, you know, his practice was growing and things were going well. And um, the Second World War occurred. And he was drafted uh, as a dental officer and sent to the South Pacific for four years um, to Guadalcanal first, then Saipan and Tinian. He was on Tinian when the Enola Gay took off with the, uh, with the atomic bomb. So my mother did a great deal of the parenting, did all of the parenting when he was away in the, in the war. And, um, but she was, she was a very strong person. And, uh, as I say, having lived through the depression and, um, uh, and, and then through the separation during the second world war, um, she was really the, the, the stout figure and the disciplinarian, um, a wonderful, wonderful lady. And my wife reminds me regularly that she had a much closer relationship with my mother than she did with her own mother and had learned so much from her. So I was the, I was the beneficiary of a very strong family. And then I had a, a, I spent my summers between age six and probably 13 or 14 on a farm in Northwestern Michigan uh, my grandfather had died. My grandmother ran the farm, and she was uh, she was quite a quite a character. Um, she was six uh, two, weighed two hundred and ten pounds, and smoked cigars. <laughs> um, so I picked I picked up a lot of. Uh, I worked in the fields. I would go I would go to the farm the day after school finished, and I would come back. Uh, the day before school started, uh, and I worked in the fields, and it was a, it was a great. That was a great experience. I had a horse, um, drove a tractor when I was nine. Uh, had a five-acre pickle pack that I sold uh, cucumbers to the cannery, and uh, so a big part of my growing up was in that both strength of my parents and then the influence and the independence that I think I gained from my from my grandmother and and the last thing on your childhood and we we kind of glossed over it a little bit uh earlier um you mentioned you had polio when you were I guess it was around 11 years old uh can, can you tell me a little bit about that experience and uh and yeah and um I was again very fortunate <clears throat> in the sense that I got I was on the farm, got sick, got very, very sick, and finally my parents had to come up and pick me up and bring me back down to the uh, to the hospital. And um, they really didn't know what was wrong with me, and then they discovered, I, and I, I recovered, uh, but they noticed that I had a scoliosis of my spine, a curvature of the spine. Uh, and the the traditional treatment in those days for that was to put you in a body cast. But again, my mother interceded, and she was convinced that was the wrong thing to do. And she found a woman doctor named Ethel Calhoun, 
who had started what was at that point a very uh, experimental treatment of um, scoliosis, where what she concluded was if you if if this was a, contracted by a youngster in a in a rapid growth period, that what you could do is to use physiotherapy and you'd build up the muscles on the concave side of the curvature and let the muscles atrophy on the convex side and you'd grow, it would grow straight. And um, so I took, I uh, had three years of, of uh, physiotherapy um, that uh, followed this Dr. Calhoun's approach and uh, I was very fortunate that my the curvature in my spine basically straightened out and that became the the classical treatment for youth scoliosis uh, and I had just been fortunate to have gotten put into that at the very early stages and, and next thing you know, you're sneaking weights into your dorm room uh, there at West Point. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, the weightlifting bug. Um, and going back to West Point, we talked about uh, everything on, on the football field and uh, your accomplishments there. You were also in the top 5% of your class. Uh, and from what I gather, you were number seven overall uh, academically. Um when did you first hear about the the Rhodes Scholarship, and what compelled you to apply for it, and uh, and how did you end up I- in Oxford? I, I don't have a really sharp answer to that because I don't quite remember. But uh, there was interest at West Point um, uh, among uh, some of us that were you know were doing quite well academically. Uh, as I said, I don't remember where it came from, but I think the point was that um, I did get very excited about it and um, and uh, applied in uh, in Michigan because you, in those days you went through this state where you were born, and there was state competition. There was state competition, and there was district competition. On the side was Paul Dodick was a high school classmate of mine whom I met at the um, uh, selection process. I hadn't seen him since we'd left high school. And he and I ended up being the two Rhodes Scholars uh, from the district. Wow. Uh, And beyond that, my class of West Point ended up with six Rhodes Scholars. In, in, in 1959? Yeah. Wow. The, that's the most, I believe it's accurate, that's the most to this day mm. that have ever been from a single institution. That's so so good good upbringing for, from Cranbrook through through the military academy. Was there any roadblocks to, to you and your five other classmates going to Oxford? No. Oh, okay. No, the army had, and um, I think during the Second World War, the army had uh, had gotten very supportive of um, of the Rhodes scholarships, 
and they went out of their way to make to encourage people to apply and to make it a a favorable experience. There was a, a, a our head of the social sciences department when I was a cadet was George A. Lincoln, Abe Lincoln, they called him. <laughs> he had been General Marshall's chief of plans during the Second World War, uh, was a three-star, and then when the war was over, he wanted to come back and teach social sciences at West Point. And they said, well, you can do that, but you have to become, you have to come fleet back to a colonel. Wow. A three-star general. Wow. And he, he said, that's fine. <laughs> so he came back, and I think for 20 years, headed the the social science department at West Point, marvelous guy. And um, I think his influence was very significant uh, in West Point's support of and yielding and that quite remarkable class of six Rhodes Scholars. Now, t- tell me a little bit about your time at Oxford, uh, both in the classroom and then also on, uh, uh, you discovered a new sport there as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, Oxford was wonderful. Um, for me, uh, and um, uh, in looking back on it, uh, I realized that I had another element of good fortune in my life, um, that I had these experiences of the West Point education and then the Oxford education, and they were, they were in, a, in truth, polar opposites. Um, at West Point, the simplified way of explaining it, at West Point, what we did was we got very good through four years of there. We got very good at solving increasingly complicated problems and questions. And that's a, very, that's a valuable skill set to have. Oxford was very different. Uh, and again, as I look back on it, I realized that what I learned at West Point was how to find answers to complicated questions. What I learned at Oxford was how to ask the right questions. And the combination of those two together um, have, um, I feel, served me uh, particularly well. Now, at Oxford, I went to Brazenose College. It was a college that was there were 32 colleges at Oxford at the time, and it was one that was very receptive to Americans. And it had a tradition of of uh, being a lot of sportsmen in the college. Mm-hmm. So the f- first day I was there, um, a group came, and there had been some publicity about my coming and my having been a football player. Uh, And they invited me to come out and try out for the college rugby team. Um, So I was thrilled to do that. Uh, And um, they were, uh, and they kind of took took care. They they taught me. A cluster of them really grabbed hold of me and and accelerated the rate at which I learned um, about rugby, since I'd never seen a rugby game before I got to Oxford. Um, so I started playing on the college side and um, 
I didn't know all the rules really well, but I did find out that if you just ran into people and tackled them <laughs> um, very aggressively at the outset, they would spend the latter part of the game trying to avoid <laughs> that. They called it crash. Ta they called it the Yanks crash tackling. Um, so I gained a little bit of a reputation there. But then, after a couple of weeks, they invited me to try out for the what are called the Greyhounds. That's the the university's second side. Mm -hmm. And um, I was really excited about that, and and that went well. Um, and I was beginning to actually learn the rules and learn how you played the game. Uh, and anyway, one thing led to another, and I ended up being selected to play um, in the Oxford-Cambridge match that year, which was about um, 12 weeks after I'd seen my first rugby game. And um, uh, that was an unusual path of <laughs> advancement in, in rugby. And I ended up playing uh, three years for the university. Oh, wow. Uh, and um, they call it getting a blue is when you play the Oxford-Cambridge match. I had three blues. And um, my, 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 probably one of my most notorious um parts of my rugby career was that when I, when I would go to practice, I always brought an American football along. Uh -huh. uh, and at the end of practice would insist on the, we, that we throw it around and kick it around and whatnot just to, so that they knew that there was a, a colonialist there. <laughs> and um, they weren't very good at catching spiral passes at the beginning because the rugby, you throw the ball uh, underhand, often end over end, but they were great athletes. We had six or seven internationals because there was national service then, and so the schoolboys who were good rugby players would when went into the army, and then they played rugby for two years, uh, and then went to university. Uh, so they were bigger and stronger, and um, so we had a particularly strong university side and um any event we were fooling around one day and the line out the game's changed now but the line out in those days was thrown in by the winger i was playing wing at that time and um they threw it underhand mm. like a old-fashioned foul shot in basketball and uh, threw it, lobbed it about five or seven yards where the forwards would leap up and try to tip it one way or the other to the which side. So I said, why don't I just throw the ball 30 yards across the field um, and uh, overhand uh, and we'd be kind of a, like a trick play. So we practiced that for a spell it was tricky because you have to, the line out has to go exactly perpendicular to the sideline. So if it drifts off one way or the other, it's a scrum down. Mm -hmm. So in the Oxford-Cambridge match that year, uh, on a certain signal, I threw this ball 30 yards across the field to our 
to our uh, three-quarter line, which had never been done in the before. <laughs> and um, we scored, won the game, and they had a double-page picture of, with a four-inch headline that said, um, the Yanks Torpedo Pass. Uh, and one of the one of the kind of satisfying things was then three years later when I was about to leave Oxford, my wife and I did a little tour by car of the southern region of England. And it was during uh, uh, rugby season and, and the schoolboys were all out playing rugby and they were all throwing the line out in overhand. So yeah, you, see, was, you introduced the forward pass. Lasting, that was my lasting contribution <laughs> to, the, to the game of rugby. Are you still involved at all with the Rhodes Trust? Do you do any of the, the interview panels or anything like that for uh, the current? Oh, yeah, I've, I've been on, gosh, I've been on selection panels for 50 years, I guess. Oh, wow. Um, through the years, you know, a lot of times when I was overseas uh, in the military and whatnot, I wasn't able to be on it. But I've, I've been pretty regularly on, I've been served in different states, Michigan, Georgia, um, uh, more recently in New York State. Uh, you know, you can only serve for a certain number of years and then they kick you off. <laughs> you can be re you can be reappointed, but it's been it's been a wonderful experience for me. I've really enjoyed it, uh, and the can the quality of the candidates nowadays is stunning. Um, I mean, we, it's sort of a hackneyed phrase, but it's true. There's no conceivable way if I was competing against the kids today that I would be able to get a Rhodes Scholarship. They are just uh, they are uh, an extraordinarily gifted and and accomplished a lot. Uh, you, you, you're very, very modest, sir. Uh, but, you know, uh, you by by any measure are, are also very gifted and extraordinary and, uh, and, and not to not to suck up too much. But uh, when you, you know, at this point in your life, you're 23, 24 years old. Um, how do you make decisions at, at that point? You, you know, you, you have all you have this incredible resume already. Um how how do you decide w- what is the next step for you? How did you decide what what branch of the army to join? Um, you know, for for instance, how what, what what's your thought process when you when you have so much to offer? How how do you focus that uh, that talent and energy? Well, you you flatter me, but I, it's really was very simple because the army, um, you know, a part of being at West Point is you end up they have a branch drawing and you select your branch. I, I chose infantry, um, uh, as my branch. Uh, when I was at Oxford, I was actually on active duty. Uh, I was assigned to the embassy with a duty station in Oxford. I got paid, um, $222 and 33 cents a month. So I was, I was rich. Uh, and, um, but when I finished Oxford, then I was immediately thrust back into the Army, the Operational Army. Um, I'd, I'd gone to parachute school before. I went to ranger school and, and infantry basic officer course. 
then uh, my first assignment was to command a company in the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, and uh, uh, from there, uh, I the, the Vietnam War was starting. Uh, I was sent out to the Defense Language Institute to study Vietnamese and then shipped over as my first assignment to be senior advisor to the Vietnamese First Airborne Battalion, which was the um, most highly decorated unit in the Vietnamese military. They were very, very good. So, you know, I, and, the, and the military is a very structured kind of environment, so I didn't, I didn't have a lot of choices to make. <laughs> a lot of those choices were made for me. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how good did your Vietnamese get? Um, I was concerned because uh, the the instructress that I had was uh, from the north, and there's three dialects of Vietnamese, north, central, and southern. And um, so she was from uh, from the north, and I was worried that I was going to have, you know, a... North Vietnamese accent, and that that wouldn't be good when I was working with South Vietnamese soldiers. <laughs> sure. Well, it turns out that it was it was just fine because virtually all of the officers in the Vietnamese army uh, come from the north. Uh, most of the private soldiers come from the south because the southern part of Vietnam was the agricultural part. Uh, and the uh, northern part was where the um, uh, where the cities, beach, the large cities were, and and the um, uh, you know professional people and whatnot came from. And, and from so that turned out from which they draw the officer corps or or, or the yeah. yeah okay. So that worked out very well. We you got to be my, my the the. Battalion commander of the of the Vietnamese battalion that I was advisor to, uh, his name was Dang D A N G, uh, spoke no English, uh, and he spoke French and Vietnamese. I didn't speak any French, so uh, I, when I arrived from the first day out, and I was in total immersion in Vietnamese. Now, um, and and those of us that went through that Defense Language Institute. Uh, program, we're, we're, we're got to be very capable. Vietnamese is a complicated five-tone language, but our vocabulary was narrow. We knew we knew how to do fire control and artillery and uh, hand grenade and all that sort of thing. <laughs> we didn't we didn't know a lot of the subtleties um, of. Uh, the vocabulary or the, uh, the range of them, but we've got to be very, very effective and competent at what we needed to do to communicate with the, the commanders on the ground. Do you think that being an athlete uh, influenced your ability to lead on the battlefield? Were, were there any tools that you could take from sports and apply it to, to being a, a company commander? Oh, sure. I think so. Um, you know, it's a, uh, it's a matter of, of uh, uh, first of all, self-confidence. Uh, and there's no question that having competed on the athletic field um, gave you a certain level of comfort 
um, in the competitive environment of the of the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not the same um, by by any means, but it, there's a great deal of overlap and transfer, uh, and throughout. Um, not just on the battlefield, but in the military more broadly, uh, I think the, the the tenets of competitive sport um, serve you extraordinarily well. Uh, and time and again, I found myself reaching back and uh, approaching a a challenge or a problem from the point of view of, uh, well, this is just like uh, what, what we had, you know, in, uh, uh, in, in, in football or hockey or whatever it was. So I, I think it, you don't have to be an athlete to be a able uh, field commander, uh, but I, it sure does help. And it, it kind of we spoke about uh, General MacArthur a little bit earlier, and uh, it, doesn't he have the famous quote about "Send me, I, I need a man for a special mission. Send, send me a West Point football player." Yeah, that wasn't MacArthur. That was, um, I think, it was Marshall. Oh, okay. I have a, I have a dangerous and difficult mission. Send me an army football send player. Me an army. <laughs> um. And you had you ended up uh, doing uh, uh, let's see you were with the first airborne battalion uh, in Vietnam and then the Mac V after that. Then I got involved in the pacification program. That's where I met uh, um, our good friend. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh! So you 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 guys were uh, probably around the same age. Uh, you and uh, we're talking about Ambassador Richard Holbrook here. Although yes. at, at the time he was he was an ambassador, but I'm sure he certainly carried himself like a, a dignified uh, diplomat. Uh, oh, he was a he he was a he was a um, remarkable, um, remarkable person from the very beginning. Yeah, tell me, tell me about him. What, what was he like? He was. Um, uh, he had. He had. He had a capacity to and a perspective uh, to put things into context and into perspective. Um, even I mean, we were we were youngsters. I was a young captain. Uh, in Vietnam, and he was a young foreign service officer. And we'd been we'd been plucked out into this small team of people who were who were to fashion the early pacification program. Um, and we were, you know, we were working. We were kind of making it up as we went along. <laughs> um, it sounds very Holbrookian. And, and uh, he, he was. You know, obviously, extraordinarily bright, um, and uh, had limitless amounts of energy, uh, and uh, had great confidence in his, uh, and I, which I think he displayed throughout his career. Um, it would be easy to have have the. To, to have seen it as arrogance, uh, 
but I never chose to to view it that way. Um, I thought it was simply uh, that he um, he thought deeply about things. Uh, he had a, a very insightful mind. Um, came to judgments quickly. Held strong beliefs, and um, and wanted to see results. Um, and those are pretty darn uh, positive qualities. Uh, and his remarkable career, I think, bore evidence of that. And he was that way in 1968, just as he was in 2008. He uh, he was. Uh, I believe so. I believe that's the truth. Did you stay in touch with him over the next several decades, or did, did you guys cross paths either in the New York or, or oh, business yeah. circle? No, we 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 were we used to go skiing together uh, in New England when I was teaching at West Point. Many tales about that, um, and uh, um, and we, I stayed in in really quite close touch and saw uh, a lot of Dick. Up until, oh gosh, probably for probably for the first uh, twenty years uh, after I had graduated, and then you know, our just our our lives moved in opposite direction, in different directions, and so I didn't see as much of him. But um, uh, but we uh, uh, no, I valued and. Uh, his friendship very highly, and I, I think, um, uh, I think it was shared on both sides. Yeah, it definitely was. As I mentioned uh, before, we started rolling here. I, I remember him talking about you fondly, and uh, it, it's always a treat to to think back. And if if you haven't seen the uh, d- documentary that his son David put together called "The Diplomat," I couldn't recommend it more highly. Yeah, I have not seen that. No, I I knew it was that he and David had done it, but I I had not. Um, I have not seen it. I'll make a point of doing that. Yeah, I'd, we'll get you a copy. I'll I'll have David send you a copy in the mail. Um, oh, that'd be terrific. For Brigadier General Pete Dawkins, this is Morgan O'Brien saying thank you for listening to the Diplo Sport Podcast. If you have a chance. Please follow us on social media at Diplosport on uh, Facebook and Twitter. And if you could subscribe to us via iTunes, that would be great too. We always appreciate feedback. Your feedback ensures that we continue to get great guests like General Dawkins.